In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Jess Love. Surprise! Uh, so Nathan is not on the pot this week. He is preparing for some uh, hopefully really exciting news to come down the pipe later on. In the meantime, Jess has very generously offered to come on the pod and co-host with me. So thank you so much, Jess. Oh, you're very welcome. It's a delight. Yeah, we have a really exciting episode for you tonight. We'll start off by talking about the Freedom Convoy, mm. which is a, a a nice name for uh, a bunch of truckers blocking up streets and highways and, and being overall ne'er-do-wells. And then we're going to talk about the Me Too bill, which uh, just passed the House and the Senate um, and is actually more exciting than you might expect coming out of this Congress. And then we're going to finally talk about something called the founding myth. And we will leave it open-ended about what exactly that myth is. I know what it is. <laughs> I should hope so. <laughs> I've got the inside scoop. Yeah, no, every, everything tonight on the podcast is going to be a surprise for Jess. Uh, <laughs> you're going to hear live reaction. <laughs> Uh, I can be unedited. I was not told this. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is not the case. <laughs> <laughs> so Nathan warned you, don't let me be unedited. <laughs> uh, well, he didn't warn me, but, uh, you know, I, I've known you for a long time, Jess. I, uh, That's true. We go way back. <laughs> don't have to be warned. We go way back, way back. Okay. Well, to start off, we'll we'll start where we usually do with the sad, tragic COVID numbers. So overall worldwide... We've hit 416 million cases, which is up from 401 million seven days ago. That's 15 million new cases in a week, or 2.14 million new cases per day, which is actually down 17% from 2.57 million new cases per day the week before. Hmm. In terms of death, we've hit 5.85 million deaths worldwide, which is up from 5.79 million uh, seven days before. Um, so that's about 60,000 new deaths in a week or about 8,500 deaths per day, which is also down um, down 22% uh, from 11,000 deaths per day the prior week. In terms of vaccination, 63.6% of the world's population has received at least one dose, which is up from 63.2% uh, the week before. So that just a 0.4% increase uh, in about a week. In terms of cases, we've hit 79.6 million cases, which is in the U.S., which is up from 78.6 million the week before. So that's 1 million new cases in a week, or about 142,000 new cases per day, which is down 53% from 300,000 new cases per day in the U.S. the prior week. And in terms of death, we've hit 948 thousand deaths in the u.s which is up from 935,000 the week before which is about 13,000 new deaths or about 1.9 thousand deaths per day which is down 27 percent from about 2,600 deaths per day the week before and in terms of vaccination in the u.s 
we are flat from last week in terms of those with one dose and those with two dose doses, uh, which is at 76% and 64% respectively. And 28% of the population has a booster, which is up just 1% from the prior week. Big yike to a lot of that. <laughs> I mean, overall, like, I, know, I don't know. It's to going me, it's down, like, but... <sighs> yeah. But it's going down from the highest peak that we had seen during the pandemic, you know? It's just devastating. Yeah. It is, and it's still, like, so with us. And it's interesting to see, like, it's interesting to see some of the coverage on states, even, like, and then cities, even, like, Democratic-controlled ones, kind of rolling back their restrictions. Because the coverage is all, all justifies it on the basis of, like, well, people are really tired of it now. Yeah, that it, that does seem to be the consensus, almost as if I, I'm just so tired of it, so we're done now. And, and I wish yeah. that the force of our collective exhaustion and frustration <laughs> could defeat this. But frankly, it's not working. So yeah. we need a new plan. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It seems weird that like now that justification is seemingly widespread, whereas it's not a good justification and, and was not even accepted because it was a terrible justification for a really long time. And yet now we're just fed up enough. Like I don't really get well, it. No, we got to get that money going. <laughs> we d that yeah, I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's like, oh no, this might hurt business interest, and it and uh that's uh that's something I I feel some type of way about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder to your point if it's like, if it's some kind of response to like some of the inflation numbers we've been seeing. I don't know how it would really affect that too much because it's so much so supply side driven. But like, I wonder if, you know, that's what's like pushing leaders over the edge is like, okay, well, you know, the, the stimulus in the economy is no longer quelling some of the economic impacts where people are starting to really feel it. Like, is it time to, to roll things back? Yeah. You would probably know more about those, uh, like big <laughs> abstract financial um, factors. I know some of what I've kind of collected through uh, various sources is just interesting things like how um, the fears over productivity and um, mm. uh, efficacy by working from home have actually been entirely unfounded. In some cases, mm. people have been more productive and others, it, they've remained pretty much the same. Mm. Um, I know a lot of people have ended up really preferring it because they don't have to worry as much about things like childcare or commute or risking your life during the plague. And yet <laughs> there are plenty of businesses who are just determined that people need to come back to the office. It's yeah. really, <laughs> they're like, why are we paying these huge leases? If people aren't, in the uh, office? <laughs> it, it sometimes feels like that. Um, I had a friend who had, um, gotten, uh, 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 COVID exposure and two people who worked in her same office uh, room had to take their work and move upstairs to a smaller room to crowd in with others because the work policy refused to allow her to work from home because she had no symptoms. Mm. It just seems like it would have made more sense to let her work from home. That way those yeah. people wouldn't have increased their risk by crowding in together. Yeah, yeah. 
it's probably less productive having like I mean if I think of like the if I think of like the uh study rooms at the library during finals, I couldn't <laughs> imagine a less productive environment than having a bunch of people crammed in together. It's nonsensical. Well yeah, fair enough. And speaking of nonsensical COVID responses, <gasps> that leads us into our first segment. We we're talking about the Freedom Convoy, um, which is happening up in Canada and kind of around the world. And man, what a mess. It's a hell of a mess. It really is. Um, I got into it kind of peripherally and then just kept pulling the thread and went down just a lot of weird rabbit holes. Um, I'm going to try not to get too deep into Canadian politics because I uh, can't really understand that um, from my cursory research. But yeah, there's a there's a truck convoy that made it up to the capital of um, Canada in Ottawa. This truck convoy seemed to have initially been um, a way for people to protest the regulations requiring truckers to be vaccinated in order to cross between the U.S. and Canadian border. Um, now it does seem that the truck convoy has kind of gotten very twisted. Uh, mm. Some of the organizers have been linked to anti-Islamic um, rhetoric, have been linked to white nationalism, have been linked to mm. QAnon. It's a weird bag. Not all the protesters, I do want to make that clear, but the organizers have been linked to that. And furthermore, um, residents reported, and I do believe this was caught on camera, that there have been at least some like white nationalist um, mm. or white supremacist um, uh, iconography, I guess. You yeah, know, I've heard reports of like swastika, Nazi, and like Confederate mm -hmm. flags, which makes Confederate no Canada. Sense you're embarrassing there. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck, Canada? Yeah, seriously. Come um, on. Yeah, and 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 it's also had some some very anti-government folks. Um, mm. At one point, there was just the demand that the uh, I'm gonna get this maybe wrong, but I think I'm right. Like that, the Queen and um, a ruling body like the governor governor do something about the vaccine mandates which is outside of their control hmm. so the queen of england the nominal I, monarch over canada well it's yeah it was just very weird they were like you do understand we have absolutely no control over this and yeah, they went just on it. our money and then they said, we're going to occupy this until Justin Trudeau resigns. Um, mm -hmm. He has left his official residence and um, enacted like a, the Canadian version of the state of emergency. So mm -hmm. we shall see how that plays out. But yeah, it's, it's a big mess. Um, it seems like the rhetoric, even by the majority of protesters now, has gone mm -hmm. from anti-vaccine mandate to just any health safety protocol mandates around mm. covid including like masks or pcr tests yeah. um claiming that it's not necessarily scientifically backed which is wild <laughs> yeah but not surprising it, like <laughs> it's interesting to me to like see like like to see copycat protests kind of spring up around the world and you start to see that like this thread of anti-government, anti-health protocol, anti, you know, restriction um, 
protests kind of runs through a lot of these. It's it's like, I mean, we laugh about like the Confederate flag thing in Canada, but it's really interesting mm-hmm. that like that like a nation unrelated to the Confederacy somehow identifies with an iconography of rebellion. Yeah. Like specific to the United States that has become such a strong symbol for just like general anti like government pro freedom, you know, it's so interesting that you use that word because um, I do remember reading that somebody was actually quoted as saying, you know, stop focusing on the vaccine, you know, focus on the message of freedom. Mm. So it is interesting. Also, as a side note, there's a particular bitter um, uh, entertainment in seeing yeah. far right people say my body, my choice. <laughs> for obvious yeah, reasons. A bit of a, a irony there. <clears throat> um, that's wild. <laughs> but yes, it it's very weird. There have been things like um drain the swamp signs hmm. and maybe a couple of Trump flags. And again, it's very yeah. strange because they're not they're Canadian, so why would they be Trump supporters? Well, yeah, I'm curious. I'm really curious to to know. I wasn't able to find this anywhere, but I'm really curious to know, like, what portion of those people may or may not be American. Yeah, I think that is I think that is a part of it. And I think um, I didn't find anything specifically, but I Mm -hmm. did see references to some Americans going up to uh, show their support. So, yeah, yeah unclear but it, yeah but like we know that like a lot of money is flowing yes. from the united states for some of the the campaigns that they've been running to kind of i guess help fund the yes the demonstrations yes so they had eight million raised on gofundme hmm. um they'd gotten about a million of it before gofundme froze it and that's mm-hmm. because they uh gofundme's response was essentially this is no longer a protest. This is an occupation and that is violating um, our terms. Then they moved to another site, which is supposed to be a lot more lax called um, give, send free. I want to say my understanding is that eventually that website even shut it down and froze, Hmm. but, but they're still collecting money. They've been having um, like rallies or gatherings in the United States. They're even like the past the old 10 bucket kind of thing. Hmm. So trying to raise money for not just the Canadian convoy now, but um, other, uh, you know, movements, I guess, like this in other areas. Um, I don't want to spoil myself for later. (laughs) I've got news. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's even like, yeah, I think that's so yeah, GoFundMe halted it with due to their internal um, terms of service, but also like an Ontario Superior Ontario Superior Court Justice also issued an order halting access to funds via I think it was Give Send Go was the which is like specifically uh, oriented as like a um, Christian way to raise money and has become kind of a, a common place for um, protests and demonstrations to like raise yeah. money from like evangelical and right wing bases um but it's really interesting that like it's interesting that like this um demonstration protest like 
occupation um, blockade <laughs> occupation yeah has like has risen to the level of having their funds frozen because of um you know the i think occupational is like the right way to put it they're like occupational effect of what they're doing because like yeah they're creating a blockade like they, they they're like blocked yeah. you know the ambassador bridge like major the, implications for car industry which even if yeah. you don't love cars or care about that i will mm-hmm. point out that buying a car right now used or new is quite expensive <laughs> i don't imagine this will help and there yeah. are midwestern factories that rely on this car industry yeah which i think is really interesting like can we pause for a moment on talking like on like the hypocrisy of so much of the anti-COVID restriction rhetoric was get back to business. Know, we got to work Get back to business. Like we have <laughs> to economy. save the economy and the economy you know, at, the, at, at the, the cost economy? of as many lives as it takes and all this stuff. And then, and like the economy at all costs was kind of mm-hmm. basically the, the mantra except apparently when it comes to what, like, like getting vaccinated, having to wear a mask to be a trucker that travels internationally like yeah i don't get it so this is a great segue because i have noticed this thread of hypocrisy not surprising i think we should acknowledge that um to an extent all movements have some hypocrisy in them it doesn't Mm -hmm. invalidate the entire movement but it is interesting when you think about um say one of the common complaints you heard about the Black Lives Matter protest that I saw certainly all over right-wing social media were people outraged about blocking off ambulances. You know, this is a danger. When you block a street, you could block an ambulance and cause harm. And yet uh, people are uh, uh, easier to move than um, trucks. Yeah. And they have effectively blocked off downtown um they actually, the for the first 11 days that they were there, they were blaring their horns 16 hours a day. The residents, one of the residents oh had to actually start a class action um, <laughs> lawsuit, demonstrate, like, this is, this is, first of all, you know, kind of the trauma of that. Like, can you imagine just being bombarded by that? And mm-hmm. they're just cheering and feeding off of your... Um, ever increasing stress because you can't get any kind of silence or quiet but also it's damaging to um your hearing so finally a judge (laughs) did say uh, you have to stop honking your horns like that's not okay yeah Yeah. but yeah it's very interesting what what they'll tolerate that i suspect they wouldn't tolerate in other movements hmm yeah that's interesting yeah it's been it's it's interesting to also see the comparison of the like Canadian response to like the U S response. Cause they're like specifically not trying to call on the military. They're like supporting local police and trying to get, you know, some national police in there, but like not trying to take a militaristic response, which, you know, in my mind is like good. I don't want, you know, on top of Ottawa being blockaded, I would want it to become a war zone or whatever, or like mm-hmm. have the, like at the same time though, like, and 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 to be clear about that, like I I really don't think military response is appropriate for responding to protests. At the same time, I think don't think this operates at the level of a protest anymore. It's like gone beyond that. At the point where you are occupying, you're blocking off like 
public roads, public access, like you are, you don't have any, you know, kind of right to be there. You're like getting fined, you're getting cited, you're getting arrested. And yet, you know, you're not leaving, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's beyond a protest. And, and I still don't think like necessarily military force should be like the go-to, but, but like certainly being able to like, take control of the situation is really necessary i mean you got your fucking trucks blocking the whole (laughs) fucking street my dudes like you know uh, i do think that there is a difference between individuals protesting standing or Mm. or sitting or or like what you know whatever they are collecting versus you know big truck cabs some of them with their trailers attached though apparently not all sort of blocking these areas that is making um things really really challenging in a lot of ways yeah yeah Yeah, i think that's right and and like to your point also like it would it would be it's like this movement has been characterized you know by not just you know protesting about these specific mandates but also kind of wider anti-government protests but it's also like been as these as these like far right kind of movements tend to be like there's been a lot of like you know pretend like like um armed individuals like yes. the like police have um uh like arrested a number of people with guns and body armor and large quantities of ammunition um and high capacity magazines and and um on sunday night a a farm tractor and a semi truck both attempted to ram a police car like it's it's not that these people are just you know putting their cars in park and and sitting around they're like attempting to be actively disruptive which is like again the point of a protest but to the point at the point where you know you are um illegally occupying a city like that that goes beyond the pale yes there there are anecdotal stories from folks about some of the actions um of the demonstrators that i wasn't able to verify from a news source so i'm going to hold back on Mm -hmm. some of that one thing that was reported on at least was um i think it was called like the good shepherd um oh Mm. i don't know like it was a it's a kind of soup um kitchen organization Mm. was talking about how at least some individuals came in from the protest and refused to leave and verbally harassed the um, volunteers there until they fed them Mm. this food that was for the houseless population in ottawa Mm. and um you know kind of putting a strain on their resources Uh, it's unclear again how many people there were and and so we don't know if you know how many folks there were but one of the things that i think is the most um concerning about this is it is gaining more momentum Mm. and um as i said i didn't want to spoil it but there are plans for a freedom convoy in the united states Mm. that it, it the plans seem to be changing a little bit but so far the plan is to around early march meet up at like coachella and drive from there and other independent areas wherever people are all the way to dc and um do i guess something similar 
convoy down there mm. so that could be something we're seeing in march so i think it's worth yeah. kind of looking at how is this operating now will that be any better especially when you consider how many more people in the united states are likely to have these you know white nationalist um and um anti-government views yeah. maybe more than canada where they have like an 80 percent vaccination rec rate and mm -hmm. they've been a little bit more accepting of these um uh covid safety precautions yeah yeah that's interesting it's kind of a i've been kind of blown away by how effective this strategy has been with like seemingly not that many people like this seems like a pretty fringe uh, movement that's like gotten a lot of attention sure. but the thing is like they're driving tractor trailers <laughs> don't need that like, many people when you got a truck are, yeah they're freaking enormous and like their wheels like totally lock once you put the air brakes on like they are they're not moving it not movable things it and so like it's actually effective to take like four or five trucks and cause you know in the case of the ambassador bridge like 350 million dollars of delayed goods per day mm -hmm. you know it's it's like which makes me like w a little bit w like worried about it coming to the united states as well as like you know they um you know they just it just puts a lot of power in the hands of just a very very few people you don't need to have a big movement in order to have a big impact and i think they've figured that out Yes, I did only find one source with a quote from, I'm pretty sure it was just a rando in the movement, who did mm -hmm. say that plans were to go to D.C. and basically occupy it until they remove or re, um, repealed any kind of like COVID safety um, vaccine mandates or mm -hmm. mask mandates or anything. Granted, that was only one source. It's also unclear if that person misunderstood uh, the thrust of the movement gathering in the U.S. or maybe not. I mean, we saw mm. that D.C. is not in um, impenetrable. We saw that on January 6th. So yep. I'm hopeful that um, there will be more caution. But I don't know. It's kind of scary to me. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way. And like, yeah. And the thing is, like, my first inclination when I see, like, a protest is, like, to be, to err on the side of, like, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, you know? Like, you know, these, you know, it, I think it, you have to, like, have a pretty high bar of disruption and, like, civil, uh, you know, distress and stuff to be, to, to make it something that, like, we have to quell, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it seems like the more I read about this, the more it, like I'm convinced that it really does meet that bar. I Yeah, I think it's that, that little flashbang moment where, you know, uh, thinking back again to when we were watching the January 6th insurrection and we were like, okay, well, mm. they're protesting and they're getting awful close, but they're not. And then, whoa, somebody just let the charge in, which doesn't yeah. mean that it wasn't organized, but just interesting how closely that can escalate especially when you have extremists yeah and you have tools yes like that's the interesting thing about this case is in most protests you know you talk about like the violent like the, the the republicans talk about like the violence during the black lives matter protests and it was like oh those people were armed with water bottles and these people are armed with semis you know it's just a very different scale yeah there there is um 
there's an interesting podcast I listened to called Behind the Bastards, and they were talking about mm-hmm. that a lot of these um, white nationalist, far right protesters or insurgents um, during the January 6th insurrection mm-hmm. really practiced and honed their skills in Oregon by basically like kicking the shit out of Black Lives Matter protesters while the police did nothing because the police were like, it's fine. It doesn't bother me. So it's interesting how emboldened, I guess I would just say the theme is that they're, they're emboldened um, possibly elsewhere. So I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I am really curious if we're going to see a police response with as light a touch as we saw on January 6th in some, in some instances, like obviously certain, like Mm. the Capitol police did what they could in a lot of cases once things got really escalated. Um, and like, you know, there's been back and forth on, you know, what they could have done, what they should have done, all that stuff. There's been a lot of study on that, but like, I'm curious to see if like we have a similar protest like this in the United States, whether, um, police will be as ambivalent to the needs and and rights of protesters. Yeah, it'll, yeah, it'll be a a nail biting thing to watch. (laughs) But also like just circling back to the hypocrisy thing real fast. Like, so let's do it. Let's go back in it. (laughs) (laughs) Rand Paul said like, this is hilarious. Uh, Quote, civil disobedience is a time-honored tradition in our country from slavery to civil rights, you name it, peaceful protests, clog things up, make pe- make people think about the mandates. And Jim Jordan came out to defend the truckers and support them, and Sean Hannity and a bunch of Fox News commentators yeah, came out. they've been really stirring like, the solidarity pot on this. and stuff. Yeah, and like um I think Trump Tucker endorsed Carlson, it. Yeah, course. Tucker Carlson is selling I heart truckers shirts and 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 stuff like that. And it's like these people who are like, you know, once once like some protests started in the street following George Floyd. They were like, Oh my God, these terrorists are, yeah. we have to send in the military to shut. And, and now because it's like people, you know, occupying the capital of a nation, um, demanding the resignation they agree with. Yeah. The demand. Yeah. Demanding change to the, the ruling power of the government. Um, but it's something they agree with. They're all of a sudden in, in total support of it. It is shocking how that works out. I think like I'm super curious to see how this continues to kind of evolve. I think like I do feel like pretty conflicted about it in general just because of my like general and, you know, sympathy for protesting and and demonstrations and stuff like that. Um, But yeah, this seems like it's really caused a lot, you know, bigger of an impact and hurt a lot more people then you know you should like protest should aim to get people's attention and cause as little harm as possible and this is pretty much trying to do the opposite and now it's time for a more lighthearted segment tips for good so jess why do we do tips for good every week michael we do tips for good because we have to talk about something since we don't talk about bruno <laughs> no, no, you know, no, I no. Still haven't heard this song. What I'm the so proud. <laughs> are you doing with your life? I'm burying my head in the sand because oh. I can't handle a single more song stuck no, in my it's head. So it's it's such a good movie. It's so good. It's everything. I mean, I was a big stan of Hamilton, so of course I'm into this. Hmm. I see. So what you're saying is if 
So really, we do Tis for Good because we don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about Bruno. We got to talk about something. So maybe that should be our tip. Talk about Bruno. No, 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 because that would be bad. And we want to do good things. No, talking about Bruno would be fine because I I can't give away the plot of the movie, Michael. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. You're going to have to watch it on your own. Yeah. We just spoil. We just spoil the like capitalism for everybody. Other than that, we don't spoil. (laughs) (laughs) I love spoiling capitalism. I mean, I Mm -hmm. think it spoils itself, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, So our tip for good today is... A very cute one. That was like the main draw, I think, for this tip. So so recently, a study was conducted by an organization um, called More Than and a team of psychologists, um, which has added evidence to something that most of us probably already know, which is that you are healthier when you have a pet in your life. So the tip for good this week is if you're able, if you're able to care for the pet, you know, and like it works with your lifestyle and you can, you know, uh, you know, afford it and all that stuff, you should get a pet. It can be anything. It doesn't have to be a dog. All the dogs are the best. I yes. say as a dog owner, um, <laughs> dogs are the best of all the animals. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. or you could get a dog like a horse, like we have, <laughs> yeah a huge dog um <laughs> but you can also get all kinds of things i think i think i'm gonna make the the assumption from reading about this study and say that it's basically anything you can pet should be fine mm. including snakes uh, release lizards, that oxytocin fish. uh-huh something exactly. to come home to something to take care of you know Add nothing else matters in the world to your life but yeah. you know um, I, exactly. I would say do a hell of a lot of research before you get a pet, though. <laughs> um, true, that's always true. my number one tip to people. You will possibly spend three weeks thinking, what the hell have I done? Why did I agree to this? I love them so much, but this is so much hard work, which is what I think people feel about having kids, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So this study found that uh, during stressful time periods, people with pets had uh, blood pressure that was actually 10% lower than non-pet uh, owners. Um, and, and over half the, res- the, the respondents found that they um, add, uh, you know, promote regular exercise and relieve feelings of isolation. Um, they report that they felt less anxious and less unhappy. Um, and and uh, 77% of respondents agreed that the presence of a dog relieves the emotions they they've been experiencing. So whatever it is, um, it helps relieve that. And so if you can, if it makes sense for you, get a pet. Yeah, they're great. And that's tips for good. So for our next segment, we're talking about something that happened last week that the Senate did that is exceedingly rare. It is almost an unheard of procedure in this Senate. Um, we've only seen it a few times uh, with this Congress. And it's so rare that, you know, if you were to look at the, the, the precedent of this Congress, you might say that it's so far outside the norm that we might not allow it to happen. And that is, they passed a bill. Whoa. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's <wow>. huge. <laughs> I'm just imagining that little guy from Schoolhouse Rock just like mm-hmm. finally happy. This is <laughs> yeah, like a Bill's like, version of nutty. He's like full of holes. He's like, oh. Yeah. Uh, really raggedy. Just, no one's needed me for years. I'm in the basement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He fell on hard um, times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so even more unheard of, this bill was a by partisan bill it passed on a bipartisan basis and it is colloquially known as the me too bill Mm. um or more specifically s2342 ending forced arbitration of sexual assault and sexual harassment act of 2021 um so quick you know we're not going to be talking about sexual assault or sexual harassment in any detail um but if that is a subject matter that bothers you or triggers you in any way go ahead and skip over this segment um because that is the main subject matter here um, and so, yeah, so the House has passed this, the Senate has passed it, it is expected to be signed by the president very soon. Um, and when I first ha- saw those headlines about this bill, I had a lot of initial emotions yeah. about that. You want to talk yeah. about those? <laughs> yeah, I did. So, yeah. <laughs> so first, you know, shock that they passed a bill in the first place, then more shock about the subject that, matter <laughs> yeah that they pass it on uh, they did anything about sexual assault and sexual harassment sure and then more shock that it's passed on a bipartisan basis like like at this like i mean it haven't like two thirds of them been me too i mean geez exactly like yeah with all the talk of like cancel culture and all this crap like you'd expect they would do nothing to help out and but it passed the Senate by unanimous consent. Um, wow. And it passed the House by a vote of 335 to 97. Nobody wants to cop to sexual misconduct. They're like, oh, crap. I, if I, I vote, no. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's like evidence. No, maybe that's the way we need to pass bills from now on. <laughs> um, so then my next emotion was skepticism, right? Because I'm like, okay, if, if this bill passed this Congress sure. with that much popularity... It can't be any good, right? <laughs> Michael, is it one of those sneaky tactics where they give it a great title, but like secretly it actually says like, we are instating prima nocta. I'm yeah. just saying that sometimes they are sneaky in bills and I am concerned. Why don't you tell me, me what's going on with it? The me too bill is like, me too. I want to get in on that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's not that. It's not sneaky. Okay. And okay. Okay. But okay. But tell me what you. So I've laid all this out. You know, this bill oh about sexual assault and sexual harassment. It's called Me Too. It's been bipartisanly passed by this Congress. And what's your reaction when I say this? The bill. So uh, so two facts, and you can tell me how you, what you think is going to happen. Two facts. One. One of the main advocates for this bill, who is credited with bringing it to Congress and getting it passed, right, was a Fox News host. Hmm. Was or currently is? I believe, I think currently is. I think. But I know at least definitely was. And. I feel like it was a woman. Every woman who's worked at Fox is like, we need something. Help us, please. Yeah, that's that's good intuition. And, and and the other fact is one of the earliest co-sponsors of this bill was Lindsey Graham. Well, Lindsey Graham. Uh, Corporate chill. Well, OK. <laughs> I'm just going to say that I 
into it that Lindsey Graham is not that concerned that he's guilty of sexual misconduct. <laughs> Why I, is that? <laughs> <laughs> As Nathan would say, Southern Bay Lindsey Graham. <laughs> Southern Bay okay. Lindsey Graham. I think Lindsey Graham is just concerned about his pleats and being a big old hypocrite, and he doesn't have any room in his fancy little head to think about sexual misconduct. So yes. <laughs> he's like, I, I am agree. winning at this game. This is one thing I can be better at than everyone, and that's having no sexual misconduct. I, I think you're totally right. But the thing is, to this bill, this bill is not just about sexual misconduct. It's about businesses. It, like, actually affects okay. employ employment. Let's get into and so it. When I first see that, I'm like, oh, my God, what the heck? So let's talk about what this bill does. And spoiler alert, it's good. It's <gasps> oh, really good. Okay, good. So I don't have to be so sus while I'm listening, like, waiting for I, the bad you part. You don't. You don't. It, yeah, there's, like... There's like almost no bad part. So, yeah. That's so, a lot to live up to. If there's a bad part, you're going to feel so embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, probably. But, okay, so this is actually like workplace legislation. Mm -hmm. So it forbids companies, universities, and other institutions from forcing um, sexual harassment and assault claims into mandatory arbitration, which is really big. So not, not only does it prevent that on a go-forward basis, it actually invalidates all existing arbitration agreements um, that prevent people from being able to file sexual assault and harassment claims in court. So, so to understand why this bill is so important, we have to understand what arbitration is. Oh, good. You're going to explain that because I was Why lost. it's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Employers, including like and 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 also like companies that provide consumer goods, um, often have provisions in their contracts, which uh, lead to something called mandatory arbitration. And arbitration is where, uh, if you have a dispute with a company you have to go through, mandatory arbitration is you have to go through a private court, not a, a civil court, not a uh, criminal court. It is a private company hmm. that acts as a third party to broker uh, resolutions between individuals and parties. I don't right? like that. It yeah, it starts to sound sus from the very beginning, that but it's like the even kind of worse shit than it for sounds. When someone has an NDA, like you got to sign an NDA for this. Yes, it's very similar to that because of the power dynamics in play, which we can talk through. Um, so arbitration agreements are part of probably like almost every employment contract that you sign. Like if you like, if you like in, on your first day of employment, you're like going through, you're signing like the ethics pledge and the employee manual in that employee manual, which is a contract is a forced arbitration agreement almost definitely. And what it does is it requires that if you have a dispute with your employer, you can't may not bring it through the courts. Mm. You have to, go to this third party. Um, so um, 
this applies. So this not only applies to employment, right? Um, when so so have you ever like gone to a website or like purchased like iTunes is a great example. Back in the day when you'd buy iTunes music, you buy the uh, you buy the song and then you'd scroll to the bottom of the agreement and you press agree and you press okay and then you're done. I mean, Michael, no, I read that whole thing. <laughs> read and understood yeah. it in eighth grade, yes. <laughs> in that contract, which is called an adhesion contract, is a mandatory arbitration principle. Mm -hmm. So not only does it apply to employment, it applies to like myriad consumer uh, consumer like goods and agreements. Um, and it is, as it's kind of been implied so far, very, very one-sided, right? Mm -hmm. If you're if you're sitting there on your new employment employer, your first day on the job, you have almost no ability to say, I'm not gonna sign a mandatory arbitration agreement. That's called I Same quit. thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You yeah, your options are leave and find a different job. Good luck finding one where there's no mandatory arbitration mm -hmm. agreement, or sign this. And it's similar with the goods and services angle on it too. It's either don't buy this thing you may not have access to our service or sign this arbitration mm -hmm. agreement. Um, and so originally these were just designed for disputes between like equal parties, right? Two companies entering into an arbitration agreement so that they can stay out of the court systems. It keeps things from being bogged down when their power dynamics are very like equal. It's, it's actually a really great way to lower the cost of having a dispute, right? But the problem is that over time, uh, the courts like allowed companies to apply these arbitration requirements to employees and to their consumers. Um, and so as a result, these, um, these companies hire the third-party arbiters to, you know, resolve these these disputes and surprise surprise um they almost always win i'm shocked yeah so so yeah so in the case of sexual Wait, harassment and sexual wins? assault <laughs> yeah yeah in the case of sexual harassment and sexual assault it's like you know obviously way worse so it's the same as if you know you were trying to like get wages back from your employer except for the fact that it's like a publicly damning yeah thing that uh, like is extremely that in which one party is extremely risk at like at, at risk and vulnerable and the other party has all the power yeah i was gonna say no business wants to be the place where you're going to experience sexual harassment abuse assault they just yeah. don't want it they're never going to be open and honest and upfront we know yep. this from colleges <laughs> yeah exactly exactly that's, that's exactly right. And so these arbitration courtrooms, as I mentioned, are private. They don't have juries. They aren't bound by the same procedural safeguards as a traditional courtroom. Um, and they don't like, and, and basically the whole idea is to settle the, to settle on an agreement um, without any threat, right? If you're, if you were to like reach a settlement in a court of law, in a civil court, the threat is, well, we go to a jury trial if we don't reach an agreement. Mm -hmm. In arbitration, it's reach an agreement or nothing you'll get you know? what you so get like, yeah exactly exactly and because you're actually barred from going to court um and so so a the american association for justice did a study on 
on this practice. And they found that workers were significantly less likely to win during arbitration than they were in the courts. Mm -hmm. And when workers did prevail over their employers, they are typically awarded one-fifth as much money as a, similar, as a similarly situated worker is in a case that is heard by a court. Yep, that all so, tracks. Yeah, exactly. So even though like 60 million employees are subject to arbitration, only about 11,000 went to arbitration from, from the five years prior to 2018. And only 208 of those won any monetary damages. Wow. That's astounding. Yes. It's astounding. So like, yeah. Um, so, so the two main companies that do arbitration in the five years leading up to 2018 um, only had 30,000 total records of, of any cases filed. Um, and for comparison, for sexual assault and harassment claims alone filed with the EEOC, during that same time, or in actually just in 2018 alone, there were 26,000 claims filed. Yep. Requiring companies to pay out $134 million in, in, in settlements. And let us all remember that a good significant portion of people who experience any kind of sexual harassment or misconduct or abuse yeah. or assault do not report it for a variety of reasons. Yes. And, and if, if, Maybe because if, of these reasons, they know it won't do anything. Yeah. Well, yeah, and if even if, if the um, if other arbitration claims, not sexual harassment or sexual uh, assault specific, are any indication, they're even less likely to do it if they're subject to an arbitration agreement. And so it leaves people in these in these employment situations with just no recourse, with no options. And the Supreme Court has repeatedly said the only way to stop companies from doing this, to, to have this mandatory arbitration, is to ban the practice. Good. And so, yeah, get up in there and regulate her. And so Congress actually did. <gasps> oh, I love <laughs> I that. Know. I just fully expected this story to include some schmuck in the background walking around going, I'm afraid to work with women. <laughs> well the thing is like the that thing schmuck is, like, is uh andrew como by the way <laughs> <laughs> well he has good reason to be afraid he's <laughs> terrible around them and he gets himself fired over it what that poor man's reputation i yeah, know that poor man his, his <laughs> reputation is accurate and that's ruinous <laughs> um and so yeah so like uh, as i mentioned earlier the fox news hose that has driven this and as jess you know intuited was Gretchen Carlson, who tried to file a, a sexual harassment uh, suit in 2016 against Fox News um, because of repeated harassment and, and um, retaliation from then-President Roger Ailes. And she was shocked to find out that she was totally barred from doing that in the court because she had signed one of these arbitration agreements. She had like no recourse. Ultimately, being wealthy and successful, she and her lawyer were able to find out a way to sue Roger Ailes directly. Mm -hmm. But that didn't solve, you know, some of the problems at Fox News themselves. And that's not and gonna so, work for like someone at Fox News who works in yes. like 
I don't want to say mailroom because I don't think that's a thing anymore, but like somebody who works <laughs> at a much lower level, like as an assistant to an assistant to an assistant or something like that. Yeah. They don't have those resources. Exactly. Or anywhere. Yeah. And companies love it to your point because it keeps these scandals out of the public eye and it puts all the power in their hands and it, and you know, it takes the, um, because people are so disincentivized from filing these um, arbitration claims in the first place, um, it just makes it way less of a problem and way easier to ignore for these companies. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the lead sponsor on this bill is New York Democrat Kirsten Dillibrand. Um, and she said, quote, no longer will survivors of sexual assault or harassment in the workplace come forward and be told that they are legally forbidden to sue their employer because somewhere buried in their employment contract was this forced arbitration. Well, that's something she's done this year that I approve of. Yeah. You can have yeah. that one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> You're welcome to it. And, and even Lindsey Graham was like, right about this. You know, he said, quote, it does not hurt business to make sure that people who are harassed in the workplace get treated fairly. It's better for business. This yeah. shows that we're listening to the world as it is. The days of taking sexual harassment, sexual assault claims, and burying them in the basement of arbitration are over. I mean, again, all sensible. Um, I, I, I won't say that Lindsey Graham has become any type of an, <laughs> um, an ally or a feminist in any kind of way, um, nope. or even someone who necessarily cares about sexual harassment or assault when it's perpetuated by like um, someone that he's uh, kissing their ass. But, you know... This is good. Good. Sounds like a good piece of legislation. Uh, Michael, you were right. <laughs> yeah. This I is think, a bright spot so. in the world. I was like, I really tried to find things in this bill that, you know, were bad. Like, you know, one of the things that this bill leaves open is it leaves it up to the person making the claim to decide whether they want to go through arbitration or the courts. Right. Yeah. I think ultimately that's a good thing because it should be between a person, a client's, you know, a, a survivor's lawyer and themselves, you know, yeah. what legal strategy they think is best. But it does leave open the possibility that companies will be able to pressure people, continue to pressure people not to like go into the courts and, and go through arbitration. And I would say that um, one of the implications I can see being um, is that companies will feel incentivized to make sure their arbitration is offering generous settlements and terms. Mm. And on the one hand, yeah, that's only masking a problem. But yep. on the other hand, survivors of that harassment or abuse need to get whatever they need in order to move on with their lives and keep going. Mm. And if that means they need to leave that job with enough money to, um, you know, tide them over until they get something else, or if they need money yep. for therapy or um, any anything like that, uh, that's their purview and that's their choice. Mm -hmm. And they don't necessarily need to go through a public, um, uh, y you know, event in order to get that kind of closure. It's not great for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And ultimately, like, it's about putting the power in the hands of survivors. And that's really what this bill appears to do. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, this doesn't solve 
the myriad other challenges that face survivors in our patriarchal and non-accepting and non-believing We didn't fix rape culture. We did not fix rape culture. But you know, I'm a big fan of, so I believe that the only way to shift culture is to just like grab it by its neck and like noogie it into submission. And that's why (laughs) I think that um, legislation like this and will be part of that our existing like leaders and businesses will probably uh not take to this as well my hope is that future workers and employees and employers will take it as a matter of course and that will force this cultural shift yeah i hope so too i also really hope that one of the things that this signals is that we will apply this method of of out you know dispensing and vacating these arbitration agreements to other kinds of it to other areas of arbitration like what we talked through earlier was an employee problem arbitration as like a forced mechanism and a consumer problem um it's just specifically terrible like it's it's like the worst possible scenario in this case but i hope that these like forced arbitrations i hope this signals that the congress will continue to legislate against mandatory arbitration in pretty much all its forms Oh, you're speaking the magic words. I love regulation. <laughs> I want so much regulation until we become less shit people, and then I want none. Uh, sounds like, uh, uh, what, Das Kapital? <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. It's channeling a little bit of that Jane Austen energy where it's like, I'm mm. all for a man who fixes himself like because a woman is so great, but he'll fix himself if he knows what's good for him. That's where Jane. That's the like one of the only times that Jane Austen and Karl Marx were like definitely on the same page. They're like, you'll fix yourself if you know what's good for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You better fix yourself, and once you fix yourself, we don't have to have those rules anymore. This is a this is an interesting culture. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> and now it's time for one of our favorite segments: Asshat of, of the week. week. We were so good. We nailed it, Michael. Who's it. our asshat? Our asshat this week is someone I've never heard of before, um, and I and I really am nostalgic for the time when I had never heard of this person. Yes, <laughs> it is Shelley Luther. <laughs> so Shelley Luther, come on down. Um, so Shelley Luther is a Texas Republican uh, candidate um, who is a former teacher, and. She just, you know, she had to speak her mind, um, not only about school choice, but more specifically about uh, about tra- transgender children. Um, and you know what I love to see in a in a an asshat like this is just a total misunderstanding of every single aspect of something that they're talking about. Um, She's yeah, a mustache just... twirling villain. Like, if we were watching a movie and this was a character, we'd be like, that's a little bit on the nose, don't you think? Guys, pull it Mm -hmm. back. Come on. No, honestly, this is like, um, like, if if the Muppets were to make a bigot. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I love it. I'm here for it. Go for it. That's, That's this. So she said, quote, I'm not comfortable with the transgenders. That's a great the kids accent. that they brought into my classroom, when they said this kid is transgendering into a different sex, that I couldn't have kids laugh at them, like other kids got in trouble for having transgender kids in class. 
That's why I vote for school choice. Boo. Boo. Like That was very conflicting because I was laughing at your accent, but not at her <laughs> words, which are horrible. They're My horrible. My body didn't know how to feel. <laughs> like, she referred to transgender children as the transgenders. Yes, like, which, as a side note, don't ever add an S or an ED to the end of transgender. Just don't do it. Okay, promise? Good. Yep. Yep. Or the. Just no, oh, you yes. don't need you the don't transgenders. Need a, you don't need an article in front of that. <laughs> you don't? Yeah, um, not at all. I do, again, want to pull at that thread of hypocrisy because I was bullied quite a lot um, as a child in school. I know this must be shocking to literally everyone who's ever met me, um, but... I also noticed that the people who are most often saying that bullying is out of control in this country and it's so mm-hmm. damn scary and they need to do something are the same people who are um, these conservative uh, teacher mom types like uh, mm. Shelley Luther. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah, like that's the other thing. So uh, another, uh, another, you know, hilarious, like totally asshattery, uh, transgender term i love the term transgendering into a different sex that's so good how fucking (laughs) stupid do you have to this is the same stupidity as the level of marjorie jewish space lasers gazpacho green (laughs) (laughs) taylor green (laughs) i don't think we could possibly make her name longer or more difficult than adding gazpacho (laughs) to marjorie Uh, taylor jewish space lasers gazpacho green (laughs) it was difficult to say in one breath Mm -hmm. and that's not just because i'm asthmatic yeah Mm. yeah i mean honestly like it's yeah it's a similarly hilarious like you really don't know what you're talking about do you like you're offensive but also stupid and which is its own form of offense Mm -hmm. um yeah i don't like her and then yeah and then she basically says like well what when these kids come to the class what are these people these kids not supposed to laugh and bully them that's like punishing the other kids for having a transgender person in class yeah and and what even if you are somebody who thinks that trans kids need to be bullied because they're so different that it's only a natural response from other children i would just first like to say fuck you but second of all let's start there like to say insert instead of trans kid insert disabled kid Mm -hmm. black kid you know um a girl like any any quiet kid shy kid whatever you need whatever person that you can christian kid there we go oh my god there we go we know how christians are always being persecuted imagine Mm. if you were um endorsing this so just whatever you need to do to be a better person Mm -hmm. think about this critically think of the children try And my favorite part is when she ties it back to school choice. What a non sequitur. And that's why I believe in school choice. So what, what is the school's choice? No, seriously. Like, what I is the know. school's choice? Are they going to like, do, I mean, what kind of heinous well, thing does she want them yeah. to do to the trans children? No, I think, I think what she's saying is like, she wants people to be able to pick their schools. So like, oh. uh, but I, that's like so unrelated to like any damn you can tell she is the life of the party in her local Mm -hmm. super bowl sunday um Mm. like party she is just 
she's there and she's immediately ready to bitch about Colin Kaepernick anytime. <laughs> yes, yes, I'd say that's right. So congratulations to Shelly Luther for being our ass hat of, of the, the week. week. <laughs> Crushed it. Okay, so for our last segment, we are talking about a concept called the founding myth, which is the myth that America was founded as a Christian nation. Zoinks! That's not true. Zoinks. You know, you, you know, like it's a, that's like a joke, but fifty-one percent of Americans believe that the U.S. Constitution establishes a Christian nation. 51%. I guess I'm not, I'm going to say I'm not mad, but I'm disappointed, America. Yeah, that's disappointing. Especially like, it's like the first line that it doesn't yeah. do that. But we'll get into that. Um, yeah, that includes, that's 71% of evangelicals, 67% of conservatives. And even among non-evangelical Christians, 47% believe that the U.S. Constitution establishes a Christian nation. And even among liberals, 33% appear that, um, yeah, believe that the Constitution mandates Christianity in America. I mean, I, I'm not that surprised. I do remember going through the um 2008 election when mm. people were like obama's a muslim and i i thought reasonably said okay he's not but so what if he is he's allowed yeah. to be whatever religion he is and they were like you can't be the president if you're not a christian and if you look at our history that would appear true there's not been an um a, yep. a, a at least no president has been openly not christian yeah but i think so i think that is actually like an intuition that captures a really important reason why people i think believe this well aside from the propaganda mm -hmm. built around it we, which we can talk through and god we trust on our like <laughs> fucking paper which side note yes. there are different gods <laughs> yeah yeah, but but the the thing is like many people I think believe like they equate having a um largely Christian, majority Christian and historically majority Christian populace mm -hmm. to being a requirement that we you know that we are a Christian nation. And I think like that conflation of our population and and to some degree our culture with our nation with our um government is i think like the big switcheroo the big swindle of this christian nationalist movement because that's what yeah. that so that's the big upshot of this founding myth the big problem with it like why does why do we care if over half the people in the United States believe that America was founded and mandated to be a Christian nation, why would we care? I know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> why, I, do, why do we care, Joe? I have a <laughs> guess. I have a guess, and it's all tied up in how the um, 
the right, the conservative party became the party of the evangelical slash fundamentalist party. So, um, you know, I'm thinking like Phyllis Schlafly. I'm thinking, you know, like the meatheads who stood in a room and were like, we have got to get people to care about Christian issues. We have to make a party care about Christian issues. Yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah, you're right. Like, and quiverful families who are hoping to have <laughs> enough children to vote in their um, like religious <laughs> yeah. leaders. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so ultimately, that's all right. Like, the, the problem with this belief is that it underpins and justifies Christian nationalism. Ultimately, it is a Christian nationalist belief, right? It's like the definition. And Christian nationalism, in turn, justifies... Uh, and is used as a justification for all kinds of harmful political activity, harmful um, action in the name of restoring Christianity, in the name of the belief that they have to restore Christianity to a position of primacy in the United States. Mm. Fundamentally, these people believe that the United States is a Christian nation founded on Christian values and that somehow over time we have fundamentally shifted from that basic Christianity and that, that Christian national identity and that it is their imperative to return us to that. And it justified, it was like part of the big thing that the big wave that Trump rode uh, yeah. into the, into office. Yeah, that was, it was wild. a big justification for that. Yeah. It was the, it was one of the major justifications for, the January 6th mm -hmm. insurrection that that the belief that um, these actions keeping Trump in office um, preventing like um, you know liberals from taking over all of those things are endowed by God and that as Americans which in their minds is as white Christians, we must do whatever is in our power to fight against that. And that is the will of God. That is the belief underpinning Christian nationalism and the one founded on the belief that the United States is a Christian nation. Yeah. I, I was thinking a lot about um, how I've seen or known um, Christian people who go in, go as far as to blame school shootings on um, removing Christ from mm. our you know schools of not letting children yeah. pray. You shut Christ out of schools, and so he's punishing you by having school mm. shootings. Which is, I'm not a Christian, but man, you talk smack about a, like my friend like that. I mean, if I were a Christian, I'd be like, that's my boy. Why are you being so mean about him? <laughs> yeah, that's some Old Testament bullshit for sure. That's like <clears throat> Jesus wants to uh, have murdered school children because you guys weren't being good enough. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, it's like very it's very strange. It's, it's a strange belief, and it's and it's you know we could talk a lot about like the feedback loop between you know um, between politics and and Christianity and one kind of feeding into the other. But ultimately, like the main problem here is that it's used as a rationalization for all kinds yes. of Wild. really, really harmful beliefs. Um, mm -hmm. And ultimately, it like it actually goes against the founding fundamental principles of that, like actually made 
the United States when it was established um, a very different form of government relative to other forms of government. Yeah, I mean, that is just just to remind everybody that one of the reasons why the United States was like, it's a big deal that we not have a monarch is because um, monarchs are closely tied to religion. They always have been. One supports the other. They need the church, whatever church it is, and the church needs them. And the way that they connect that is they say a monarch is ordained by God. Mm -hmm. So what they rule, how they rule, it must be what God wants because the monarch is ordained by God. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, And from that historical perspective, like if you interpret the question, is America a Christian nation from like a, like founded on like Christian values from like a literal perspective, like is Christianity in the Constitution, which, you know, apparently 51% of people believe and have never read the Constitution. Um, like, the answer is clearly no. In fact, the answer is clearly, like, the opposite of that. Sure. Like, to your point, one of the things they were rebelling against was having, like, a theocracy in place governing them. And, like... Yeah, having unquestionable the- authority... On the mm-hmm. basis of God gave you permission. I have a note that yeah. says I can do what I want. Yeah. And one of the influences on the form of government that they landed on was the fact that the the persecuted minor- religious minorities that fled England prior to um, the establishment of, of the United States while they were establishing the colonies actually made these incredibly oppressive theocratic regimes in the colonies when they arrived right yes <laughs> the puritans they, yes yes exactly oh, they and were such they dicks realized, i'm sorry they were such dicks yeah they were horrible they were horrible because because i don't know if the founders picked up on this but a a a pattern which was like seen with john calvin and 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 other religious leaders is that often when uh, forms of government are established based on religion. The justification is we have to have freedom of religion to protect us when we're in the minority. But as soon as that religion becomes the majority, theocracy reigns. Yes, <laughs> the, and, and that is very yeah, common to happen. Yeah, and freedom. Yeah, and freedom of religion is then abolished, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, and so, you know, writing in common sense, Thomas Paine argued against. Um, theology and politics mixing that was like Um, the humanist movement wasn't it yeah i'm a little rusty on it but like wasn't that kind of the big one of the big um philosophies that really influenced our nation's government as it was being built was the you know the idea that you know you should be considering the the humanist approach not any kind of religious approach yeah yeah it's actually like really interesting to to think about like at the time how crazy it is that our founding documents l- largely do not reference religion. Mm-hmm. And and because of religion was like the default justification and uh, for things, like that has to be a choice, right? Like Oh yeah. What is often refer- like referenced when people make the argument that America is a Christian nation is the Declaration of Independence, right? Because it's like the only founding document if we look at the constitution the amendments the only founding document that references god because it it makes appeals to natural law and nature's god 
and it says we have rights endowed by our creator. Although note that creator doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the Christian God or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, to your point about humanism, those references um, are still anchored in like human centric, uh, human centric clauses and, and things like it's all about that the power comes from the people not from god it's about the rights of people and human rights even if those rights are somehow up the chain derived from god it's still about like the humanist perspective that it's it's the people that matter and right. it, it and it kind of lends itself to at least theoretically a bit of a meritocracy because again you can't yep. say well even though this um you know 16 year old dude is dumb as a box of rocks he's our next ruler because he's got the bloodlines <laughs> that were handpicked mm -hmm. by god so in this case it's well we we're choosing our leaders based on who we think would be a good leader yeah yeah Totally. So, so the thing is, the thing, the argument that historians make about this is that like those references to like God and things were more part of the language of the day than part of like a fundamental belief that America should be a Christian nation. Sure. And if you need any other like evidence, it's just right there. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. No ambiguity, no historical analysis necessary. Like, it's right there. And it makes sense, especially when you consider the people who um, fled for, you know, religious freedom, even though they became dicks once they became the majority. Um, mm -hmm. They had survived living in England, which really... Uh, <laughs> If you know anything about Tudor history, which I know mm. way too much because it's a special interest, um, there was a period of time where England was so fraught because it went from being Catholic to the Church of England, then back to being Catholic, then back to being the Church of England. And in mm. between that, um, under the Catholic regimes, there were Protestants being burned or killed. Yeah. And under yeah. the Protestant regime, there were Catholics being burned or killed. And yep. the people were the ones who suffered because they're supposed to just switch their faiths like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It was like incredibly harsh. And we should be very appreciative that our that like the people that established, you know, the the foundational laws of our country recognized that historical trend and, and tried to and tried to go against it. I mean, sure. we were the first nation that like removed the first like Western nation that removed uh like faith religion requirements for holding public office. Yeah. Like, like we specifically didn't want to require faith to govern. Um, and the thing is like following that very clear political intent throughout the 19th century, the myth of America as a Christian nation became really important to justify various actions by the United States most notably some of our main atrocities, including like, you know, the genocide of Native Americans justified by, you know, spreading Christianity and American expansionism. Um, yeah, they're heathens, to, you know, who cares what yeah, happens exactly. to them? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and we need to like convert them and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and like 
slaveholders used it to justify slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, like in the Confederate Constitution, they modeled it after the U.S. Constitution, but specifically added back in or added in for the first time, really, references to God, including the phrase, in God we trust. That's very on brand for the South. Well, it was a big part of their justification for for their belief in the natural order of things was that they had been given this right to rule over people. And you wouldn't find in the Bible rebukes of slavery. Sure. Um, and so this gained actually a bunch of momentum, right, in the 20, mid-20th century, as civil rights were gaining momentum, as Jim Crow laws were slowly being disran- dismantled. Um, the, count, the, you know, the counteraction to all of that was kind of an explosion of white American Christian identity mm-hmm. attempting to intertwine Christianity and civil and government life. So, you know, I think you referenced this earlier in like the 1950s, we had um, the one nation under God added like in the pledge. We had in God we trust added as like our national motto and like can't added be like to those our godless uh, communists. Yeah, exactly. And 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 we had the national day of prayer and a national prayer breakfast and the country became convinced uh, or much of the country became convinced that this was because this reflected like the plurality of our cultural identity. This was the appropriate governmental identity of the United States. And to your point about the interaction between white Christian nationalism and identity with like communism and socialism and, and, and like, you know, more conservative political ideas, right? Those things aren't natural pairings, except for the fact that the white Christian American identity um, was so often used to, I, to, to justify um, policies, you know, advocated for by the conservative movement. And so that yeah. pairing, which has now manifest in, you know, most notably attempted violent overthrow of the government. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, is, is now like a defining force in our life and has convinced 51% of the population that America is by definition Christian. And in their mind, if it's not better make it. Um, and I just wanted to add kind of to that, the, 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 the conservative, um, ideals and issues that the um, Christian, you know, evangelical evangelicals took up are kind of also about establishing a patriarchy because mm-hmm. you can find so many references in mm. the Bible to, you know, man leading women and like taking, you know, taking control of the mantle of the family. And so when you think about like, wh- why would they support anti-abortion? agendas or rhetoric abortions have been done since the beginning of time and were done Mm -hmm. by plenty of christians in the world except if you really want to fight back against that 
pesky feminism that's been rising up. You gotta keep these women stuck on their backs giving birth. And, you know, some of them might die of childbirth. And then, hey, you go and get another one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think you're absolutely right to call it the connection between um, Christian nationalism and and patriarchy. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I think a couple of things to call out, you know, is like, obviously, you know, Christianity doesn't equal Christian nationalism, right? Christianity, even like white Christianity, doesn't equal racism, all of, like, like, uh, bigotry, all of the, like, you know, harmful conservative policies, all the things that, um, you know, we wouldn't want to just ascribe to a religion. What the problem though, is this coincidence of, um, a number of factors that is, that has led to a belief that, you know, it is a, it is a political and, and, um, a crusade incumbent upon white Christians to reclaim a nation that they believe is their, is their right to rule. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like fundamentally, um, the values of the United States of, you know, freedom of religion, you know, free speech, uh, all of those values are fundamentally opposed to, the belief that America was founded on a Christian as a Christian nation, because you can't have freedom of religion without with, with a government that you know has a religion. And with that, we will finish up our episode by thanking our great patrons. So, thank you to Taylor Bloom. Uh, Jerry DeViller, uh, Fade Out Scoop, Kyle Chaska, and Tobias Janssen for supporting the show. So, Jess, we got to finish on our highlights, just like we always do on this show. So what's your highlight this week? Um, okay, uh, ooh. I should have been prepared. Um, <laughs> uh, I would say that... Um, my highlight was getting to see my nieces on Sunday, um, even though they are little germ factories, so it's been <laughs> kind of scary to try to see them. It was good. Um, got to see all five of them. There are quite a few of wow, them. A it's a lot. Five of them under the age of nine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. The noises. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That was good. That sounds great. That sounds great. What was your highlight, Michael? Uh, my highlight is always perspective because I'm always looking to the future. I am <laughs> Bri and I are going to Colorado, flying out on Friday to wow. ski for for a few days, and that's going to just be so much fun. Um, yeah, I, I can't wait. I've never skied in Colorado before, so I'm really really excited. I also have never skied in Colorado. <laughs> have you skied? No. <laughs> okay. Well. <laughs> no, I like and my limbs where they are, and I'm a clumsy person. <laughs> I don't even go down slides. I have a whole tragic history with it. Mm. Man, next time we will do a segment on slides, <laughs> public health risks that they are. They are. <laughs> All right. And with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs>